Welcome to Fully Covered, sponsored by Grant Thornton, leading providers in audit, tax and advisory services. So hi, everybody. My name is Emma Leonard. I've worked in the insurance sector for almost 20 years now, having previously worked in claims, regulation and currently in the risk management sphere. Today, I'm delighted to have Minister Jennifer Carol McNeil as my guest. Jennifer is the Minister for State in the Department of Finance with responsibility for financial services, credit unions and insurance. Jennifer was elected as a TD for Dunleary in the 2020 general election, where she ran for the first time as a Fine Gael candidate. Much of Jennifer's work prior to her appointment as Minister centred around a number of Oireachtas committees, which she was a member of, including the Public Accounts Committee, the Justice Committee and the Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Jennifer is a qualified solicitor and barrister holding a PhD in public policy with over a decade of experience working in a range of government departments on policy and legislation prior to her election as TD. So Jennifer, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here with me today on Fully Covered. You've definitely been in my sights for a while in terms of the podcast, (laughs) because it's obviously very clear that you're passionate about the sector. And it seems like you're doing fabulous work uh, to promote the industry and to support the consumers. So and all that encompasses. So many thanks for your time today. So I'd like to maybe kick off by maybe just you telling me a little bit about your background and maybe a little bit about your role as Minister for Insurance. Well, I mean, my background, as you've set out there, my professional work background, but my background is I actually come from a family where insurance was very relevant. We had a small newsagent shop in Blanchardstown. And, you know, now as Minister for Insurance, I'm dealing with the question of you know, business insurance, public liability insurance for so many shops like that. Then we had a guest house. We moved to a, the shop didn't work out. You know, there was a the Blanchardstown Town Centre was built and everybody went there instead, as, as happens to businesses, as happens to small businesses all over Ireland. So we moved house and set up a bed and breakfast instead. And so again, there you have people coming and going. You have all of the exposure to public and everything that that goes with that for a small business. And and so it's, it's interesting now as Minister for Insurance to have that understanding, to have that understanding of family business, small business, which is most of the Irish economy, as you're well aware, and to really think about it from the consumer's perspective about being able to access insurance and access competitive insurance. So I certainly come to it from from two different directions. As you've said, you know, I'm a huge supporter of the insurance industry. I mean, what a thriving business in Ireland, 28,000 people working in insurance. But what I think the story that isn't told is the complexity of that and quite how much insurance we're selling exporting to other countries all around the world, not just within Europe, but right around the world. But at the end of the day, you know, we always think, well, what's the point of that? The point of that is to enable people to get on with their lives in a risk managed way, to be able to run businesses, to be able to run play centres, to be able to conduct their lives in a risk managed way. And uh, insurance in that way is a really important social product as much as being a consumer product, as much as being a business. And it's a fascinating challenge. It's a fascinating conversation as Minister for Insurance to both be a champion of the industry and to try to sell, you know, insurance in Ireland as a great story, as the great story that it is. And at the same time, be an advocate for the consumer, be an advocate for small business, be an advocate for the most competitive, stable insurance regime that we can have. And that, you know, I, I just find that a very interesting and important seat. And, and, uh, and I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. Maybe can we talk a little bit about the ministerial role? What is the background to that? Has that been something that's been there for a while, that particular role? I think Michael Darcy was the first Minister for Insurance. So um, there's myself, prior to me, there was Sean Fleming and then Michael Darcy. And I think the background to it has always been this concern that Ireland has been, frankly, a dramatic outlier 
in terms of insurance premiums and in terms of claims. And that has been an unstable market. And the instability of that market means that Irish people are paying, we're paying far too much for their insurance, for their car insurance. Irish businesses paying too much for their insurance. And the drive really was to, like government can't, give, you know, sell insurance. Government can't set the price for insurance, but it can sure set the conditions for it. And in many ways, a bit like creating employment, government can't create jobs, but it can create the conditions for that. Similarly, in insurance can create the conditions for stability. And there was a programme, a cross-government programme agreed of reform from the Department of Justice, the Department of Enterprise, the Department of Finance, supervised by the Taoiseach's Office of Cabinet Subcommittee to change all that government could to make the insurance market more stable. So what has that meant? We've created a fraud office in the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. We've changed the laws around perjury to make it much more significant offence to give false evidence in front of a court, which, you know, had been a significant issue. We've strengthened and really completely reformed the Personal Injuries Assessment Board. Even now, we've introduced further and better changes to enable more mediation to be able to try to drive as much of the settlement activity that needs to happen into the Personal Injuries Assessment Board. Why? Because it's quicker, it's cheaper for everybody and you're going to get essentially a very similar outcome. But creating stability in the insurance market means that everybody's premium can go down. So that programme of reform has been operating over the last four years. We were 90% complete. I think we're, we're above that now because the major change to the Occupiers Liability Act has gone through, will be commenced on the 31st of July. And that was the hugely last significant change. So government has more than played its role. And I think that's well acknowledged within the insurance industry. My job now as Minister for Insurance is to make sure that the benefits of those reforms are sticky, that the personal injury guidelines can be implemented in the way that we want them to, that provide certainty, that PIAB is the place of choice, that solicitors are not, for example, sidestepping or waiting to go through a PIAB process and then take it up anyway, that PIAB really becomes the dominant place where claims are settled and that that can be predictable. I expect to see that reflected in the pricing by insurers for the Irish market. We've already seen huge benefits on motor insurance side, for example, where the premiums have come down from by 40% since a peak in 2017. But I expect to be able to see that the benefits of the stickiness of the reforms that we've made should generate that stability. But, you know, the insurance companies have their part to play, too. And I, you know, I am in a constant dialogue with them. I will be meeting all of the CEOs again in the autumn to discuss that further. Ireland works as a partnership between business and government. And I think that's the best kind of environment generally. You always want to work in collaboration. You always want to work in partnership. Ireland is a very pro-business economy. My party, Fine Gael, are a very pro-business party because of the economic benefits that are driven from that. But at the same time, business has to come to the table and be practical and be responsive to consumer needs as well. Business needs to come to the table and understand that not everything can be done by models, that you know that you must price risk based on the individual need, that really to have they gone out and really understood their customer, the efforts, the professionalism of their customer, the efforts that they have made to mitigate risk in their business. It isn't enough for me as a politician or as a TD to sit apart from my constituents and not to try to understand the practical difficulties that they're facing and to try to fix the system for them. No more is it acceptable for insurance companies to sit at a distance from what are their customers? What are their source of income? What are their source of income for employment? This is a partnership always. And I think that the government certainly has played its role 
and will continue to work with the insurance industry to champion it and to make the conditions as stable and as effective for them to operate profitable businesses because that's not a problem, you know, that's what we want. But at the same time, we expect to see the same leaning in and interest by insurance companies into the detail and the granularity of what businesses in particular are experiencing. Yeah, and there's definitely a lot in there to unpick. And maybe uh, one area that's been very topical uh, at the moment is the lack of competition in certain sectors. And you mentioned there, you know, playgrounds and crashes and we've had, you know, bouncy castle companies and things like that go out of business because they haven't been able to afford the insurance costs. Um, So it's a very tricky balance. You know, I've had people in here talking about from an insurance company perspective, you know, those risks, they're just too high and there is no competition in the market at the moment. So unfortunately, they have to charge those particular prices based on the risk. So that's the challenge, I suppose, that's there from an insurance company perspective. But then on the on the other side, absolutely, we need to support local businesses and uh, support the economy as much as we can. So how can we get that balance to work a little bit better? You know, I don't accept that argument, actually, because in the instances that you've outlined there, solutions were found. So they may have not been found by the insurers whom you spoke to and declined to take the the, the level of interest or the level of leaning in that I'm talking about. But solutions actually have been found for play centres, for bouncy castles. And it has come by really getting into the market, really understanding customers, getting them to come together to put in a risk mitigation strategy, to put to, to make that very clear and to present a new story, new data to the underwriters to be able to price that risk in a more realistic way and away from way it had been before to really understand the changes that those businesses had made and that way in which the professional way in which they've been running. It's just that argument, maybe if it was advanced two or three years ago, would have been incorrect then because it has been proved that there is a solution to it. And it's certainly not correct now because those solutions, those pinch points, solutions have been found. And let's just Put those aside for a second. 90% of the insurance market is working really well. It's very, very competitive. We have, you know, all of the big insurance companies here. We have five of the big reinsurance companies based in Ireland. It is a competitive market in large part. Those pinch points we have found overwhelmingly that they've been sorted out by this sort of work, by people who are interested in doing it. I find speaking to some of the CEOs of the different insurance companies, some of them are really interested and I, I listen to them. The great authenticity with which they describe to me specifically the next steps they're taking on extending their risk appetite, specifically the partnerships that they understand from their business that enable them to take further steps to cover areas that have been overlooked or neglected or not not felt possible. And a lot of that is coming from the confidence and the stability of the reform programme. So I just don't accept it. I do acknowledge that there are a couple of areas where if the community that are looking for insurance haven't made those efforts, yeah, fair enough. I can't, you know, I mean, I can't defend that really. But in large part they have and the Department of Finance um, since I've come in as Minister I've been really encouraged to see the effort with which individual officials in the Department of Finance are engaging with individual insurers to find a solution to individual or you know small groups of businesses small groups of pinch points and that has delivered results that isn't seen but you know I see it and I think it's you know it's important that people know that that's what civil servants are doing on their behalf and as I said to you government can't provide insurance but it can create the conditions for it and I think it's really important that 
Department of Finance officials and myself and anybody else involved in this at a government level is putting pressure to say. I think we have to be robust and we, we have to really challenge what's being said all the time. Certainly I'm challenged with everything that I say and uh, and I don't think that that's an unreasonable proposition for, for those providing insurance in, a, in, a, in what is already a very competitive market and an increasingly stable market, an increasingly attractive market. You've talked there about bringing in more competition. And we've seen that the government's reform programme has created the stability to enable that. We've seen Generali, for example, coming back into this market and describing it as an attractive market, as a stable, attractive market. We've seen outsurance from South Africa come in and look to look to establish here, out in my own constituency, out in Cherrywood, uh, establish a presence there and put in an application to the central bank. We've seen, I've spoken to a number of different insurance companies who didn't operate in certain sectors who are now looking to either extend their license with the central bank or take steps within their existing license to be able to provide better cover. So that is what I hear. I mean, I've met even just in the last six weeks, four weeks, met a number of different insurance companies who are describing exactly that to me. You can see different broker presences coming in. You can see how that's impacting the market. So I think it is becoming increasingly competitive. But look, I'm a perfectionist. I I want to push it further, I want to drive it further. And the place where I'm really, I think it's really important to highlight is the changes that were made to the Occupiers Liability Act, where we are now, Ireland is now in line with the rest of Europe and that insurers should be considering Ireland on that basis prospectively. And what I will be asking is when our business is going to see the benefit of the change that the government made, because insurers are definitely going to see the benefit of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one thing that's very refreshing about you and your role is that you're you're really engaging with the industry and, you know, you're out there meeting with the CEOs and you mentioned that you're, you're going to you're planning to meet with them later in the year. From those meetings, what were the key themes coming out of those meetings? Well, I don't know whether I was surprised. I was very interested. Mm. You know, I was really very interested and wanted to understand everybody's different perspective and everybody's different business. It was very clear that the Occupiers Liability Act was a challenge and I completely accept that. Now it's been changed, it's no longer a challenge. I am completely interested in the actual experience of insurers from through the PIAB process, through the personal injuries assessment process, and what happens afterwards. And where I was very intrigued and where this is of real importance is different perspectives on how to treat something post-PIAB, different perspectives by insurers on how far they will fight a claim or whether they're minded to settle it. I'm intrigued to see, more than intrigued, I mean, it's of, if it's of fundamental importance, the level of effort that's put into assessing claims that are perceived to be fraudulent, what happens then. And I think without getting, you know, every insurer has an obligation to describe, there's no point in complaining to me about the system. You've got to describe to me the granularity of your experience. You've got to describe the granularity of what's happening and what you're doing to try to mitigate that. There is no point in us having a fraud coordination office unless complaints are being made there. And I want to understand all of the pathways in relation to that. There is also a big cultural piece, though, as well, which, you know, I don't believe is necessarily the responsibility of insurers, but it is a broader societal piece, which is about understanding that if you take a claim that could be resolved through PIAB into court, of course you have the right to access to justice, but the effect on legal costs, the the cost is 20 times more expensive to resolve that claim. And it isn't the insurance companies that are going to pay for it. It's you. It's your mother, your brother, your father, every time their car insurance comes up for reanalysis. And that 
culture, I think we have to show people that it's really worth it to stick with the PIAP process. But what I'm finding is that people are seeing that. The acceptance rates for PIAP are going up very considerably. The insurance companies are accepting the PIAP process also. Where I think is a big question is for the law society and for solicitors firms. And I would be exceptionally disappointed if I ever found out that there were solicitors firms that had never accepted an outcome, a recommendation from PIAB. That to me would be just an untenable position to try to say w- w- was somehow acceptable. That just couldn't possibly be the case. So I think getting into the detail of some of that is very important. And where um, when you ask me a question about meeting the insurance companies, those are the sorts of variances that I think are the difference between these reforms sticking and not sticking. And so that's where I put a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of effort because the big things are done, you mm-hmm. know, as, 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 as we've said. So I'm looking forward to meeting them all again in the autumn. Not only have I had the chance to better understand their businesses and better champion their businesses as much as I can, but I also have had the opportunity to see the change made to the Occupiers Liability Act and understand now or, you know, discuss with them expectations about where that will go. And just in terms of those expectations, are there targets to meet or how can that be monitored and measured and, you know, subsequent action taken if needed? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the first and most important thing is that it's very clear that the courts are going to have to apply the new legislation robustly, which I would, of course, expect them to do. That will be something I think people will want to watch and see. But at the end of the day, the legal change that has been made is very significant. And The insurance companies operating in Ireland do not operate in Ireland as a silo. They operate in other jurisdictions where the change that we've made from being, you know, reasonable grounds, knowing or having reasonable grounds to know from to knowing or being actually reckless as to knowing. That is the legal structure under which they operate insurance in other jurisdictions. So they already have a detailed understanding about what that expectation may be. And they have, you know, already the capacity to price in and to understand when that change was likely to be made. We told them it would be done by the end of July. That has now happened. You know, it's been completely predictable. But I recognise, though, you know, there has to be implementation by the courts. There has to be implementation by PIAB. And it's my job to try to make sure that all of those things happen. Where, if you look at the NCID data that came out from the central bank last week, you know, it is clear that the majority of companies are paying what may appear to you or me to be a reasonably small premium of less than €5,000. But €5,000 is an awful lot for a small newsagent shop, like I described. It's an awful lot for a small bed and breakfast, like I described. You know, this is they, they, these are not insignificant sums. They may be insignificant sums if, if you're dealing with thousands and thousands of them, but for the individual business holder, they're very significant. And the question is, to what extent have they been inflated by the slips, trips and falls culture that was enabled by the legislation and and where does that change? And if the legislation has changed, the legal basis has changed, the premiums should change. And I think that'll be very important to track over an 18 to 24 month period. Of course, I recognise that there will be incidents for which claims will be made that have not yet been made and that there's a certain transition period. And I recognise that, of course, and I think business recognises that. But that's a limited period. And, you know, the new law will be in effect from the 31st of July and any new claim taken will be taken under the new rules. Yeah, no, some really interesting stuff there. I think hopefully all of those reforms and there have like we, we can't underestimate the significance of those reforms in quite a short period of time. So hopefully over the next few years, we'll see some significant impacts on the back of those. And that will all help the reputation of the market because the reputation has really been hit badly, I would say, in Ireland. And 
there's been a lot of things that have fed into that, unfortunately. But from talking to the new entrants coming into the market, is that something that might have, you know, scared them a little bit about coming in? Or, you know, what what are the new entrants' thoughts on the Irish market? They're here because of the changes that have been made by the government, you know, and they say that very, very explicitly. They're here because they can see a different insurance market here than would have been the case 10 years ago. I mean, you're right, the reputation did take a hit, in particular, I think, because PIAB was established in 2003, 2004 and didn't stick. And what I've talked about, about the stickiness of the PIAB process, of the enhanced PIAB process, is really important. And that's why it's important to be really granular about every element of making sure that works. It didn't work before and we're not going to let that happen. Again, But also the underlying conditions that we talked about have changed. The legal position has changed and insurers can clearly see that there is a profitable industry here, but that it's a stable industry. And that is something that they're happy to move into. And I'm very encouraged by that. And I suppose the regulatory landscape is obviously always very important from an insurer's perspective, either a new entrant coming in or for companies already in situ in Ireland. What are your thoughts on the regulatory environment? I suppose there would be some people out there that would challenge it, that it's quite onerous and proportionality can be a challenge, I think, for some companies, you know, if they're maybe smaller in in size. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, first of all, central bank is robustly independent and that's the way it, it, it must and, and should be. However, I do obviously engage with the central bank uh, very, very often uh, with the governor and deputy governors. I was just down there meeting the teams, meeting the insurance team last week to better understand what they're doing, what their perspective is. Obviously, there's a very important part of what the central bank is doing, which is writing so much international insurance out of Ireland, there's a responsibility there that we sometimes forget, you know. It's the same with financial services. If German teachers' pension funds are being managed or regulated out of Ireland, then Ireland has a particular responsibility. You know, and it's it's sort of inverted relative to our size, but we are hugely responsible for the financial well being of and pension funds of, of 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 people right across Europe. The same is true in relation to insurance. And I think, you know, my perspective on the central bank over time has been that it has been one that suffered a lot of reputational damage during the financial crash, implemented a lot of very significant reforms, is very well supervised by Europe. When I talk to businesses, whether it's financial services, insurance, they want to come here because of the standard of regulation by the central bank. And it's not straightforward to get your license and it's not straightforward to get an extension of your license. But I think what I see from the central bank in the short time that I'm there and indeed, and what I hear back from financial services, from insurance, I hear back the closer engagement, closer sort of stakeholder partnership, closer a closer relationship, which I think is one that's that's important. Sometimes when institutions have a crisis, they can swing very far, you know, from being you know, having maybe having not very good practices to being overly onerous. And there's always a time when it swings back. And the challenge is to swing back towards engagement, but without compromising standards. And that's the space I think we're in with the central bank. And I see that and I hear that back from different sectors and different jurisdictions. But there's no question but that being regulated by the Irish, the Central Bank of Ireland, it's a major point of credibility, particularly in the US financial services market. And that's an important piece. So, um, I would never ever question the standard that the central bank sets, but I'm always enthusiastic about closer engagement and understanding and partnership and collaboration. Because as I said to you earlier, government and business in Ireland work in partnership to be able to drive employment and a strong economy. And the central bank, in my view, has a strong role to play in that also. One thing that I've discussed probably at length um, during these podcasts is attracting talent into the sector and the gender gap. 
And it's definitely something where we have seen improvements and companies are doing a huge amount in this space. And the central bank do support that initiative, those initiatives as well, really well. But I think there's a lot more to do. I know you're, you know, a big uh, proponent of this and it's something that you feel very strongly about and very supportive of, which is fantastic. But what are your thoughts on that and what more can the sector do to try and bridge that gap? Gender and financial services, gender equality and financial services is still a problem. There's just no question about that. Where I'm encouraged in the insurance side is that more, a greater proportion of insurance companies than any other signed up to the Women in Finance Charter. Now, there's a good bit of work to go to, to do that. But, you know, that's just an encouraging note in itself, It's it's, it's uh, which, which, which is a good thing. But I think with financial services more broadly, the first thing is recognising that gender is a problem. Asking what are the work practices that mitigate against women doing well or getting beyond a particular threshold in proportionate numbers, which is the same issue that we see in commercial law firms, in accountancy firms, auditing firms, you know, it's a similar sort of dynamic. So why is that? And I have always been of the view that it's about a disproportionate impact, and this might sound so obvious, sorry, I can't believe I'm even saying it, but a disproportionate impact on women's careers when they have babies. But of course, men and women have babies. Why are women's careers so systematically impacted disproportionately by the fact of having a baby with a partner and that is mm-hmm. the beginning and the end of it and we have changed 50 years now we're in the European Union and we published gender pay gap reporting you know we, we've changed the laws to require gender pay gap reporting because it's still an issue 50 years after it became a right to have the same pay I mean that's ridiculous obviously sorry that's very strong but really yeah, it is like there's yeah, no other way of looking at it you know yeah. after 50 years mm-hmm. similarly though I'm not sure that everything is the pay is hugely important but pay is it, you know when I look at the reports from different companies they're saying well you know our, our gender pay gap is very large because our highest earners are basically mostly men I go okay well you know that's a significant issue why is that and it speaks to what's happening within the organisations about getting women through the child the, you know, the, the early childhood mm-hmm. years that can be so disruptive to, to somebody's career. But as I said, more disproportionately so for women. And I think the biggest question for me is around flexible working and the culture within any organisation about both genders um, op- looking for opportunities to take flexible working. I always remember the example of a pal of mine who... She worked in financial services. Her partner worked in financial services. They had the second child. She went to a three-day week and he stayed at a five-day week. Huge impact on her career. No capacity for her to break beyond where where she was, even if she'd come back. You know, she'd missed the window. Huge impact on her pension. Huge impact on her participation. And we see this again and again, not just in Ireland, but right across Europe. Women's participation in social life. Women's pension poverty. The disproportionate impact on women. It is so, for her, I'm not singling her, but you know what I mean, her, a woman of at her, in her decision making, the impact is not for the three or four years that it takes to get the two children into school and get that bit better routine that, that happens for all parents at that stage. The impact is a 30-year impact. On the other hand, had her partner felt culturally comfortable enough to go in and say, hey, you know, we've just had a second baby there. I'll be looking to do a four-day week now for the next three, four years, you know. But that, certainly at that time, just wasn't culturally yeah. on the cards. Now, I think COVID has changed, mm-hmm. changed that a lot because I think 
you know, first of all, I think men and women should both have the opportunity to spend time with their children, drop them off to crash. I'm so encouraged when I look around my constituency and I see a man walking back at 10 past nine with the scooter and the helmet, you know, like it's, you know, because you can see it. But mm-hmm. isn't that a better quality of life mm-hmm. for everybody? We've seen it really hasn't impacted productivity, hasn't impacted the yeah. economy overall. And it is a much more sensible, balanced way to live when you think about it. Like I remember when my child was three. I was working in the private sector at the time and I was racing to drop him off at a crash, racing to be physically present at 9am because apparently I was, I don't know, less capable, less intelligent or whatever, less of a leader if, if I wasn't there until whatever time, racing back to get him. He was unhappy. I was unhappy. Mm-hmm. Five days a week. Everybody's moving at the same time. It just, you would never design that system. And now that we've had the opportunity to see something different, we certainly would never go back yeah, to absolutely. that sort of idea. Yeah. But the opportunity from COVID to make those sorts of cultural workplace changes where actually parenting and the responsibility of parenting is distributed equally between partners. This is a great chance. This is the best chance for changing the opportunity for women to come in. They're coming in at equal numbers at a junior level into financial services, the same as everywhere else. They're exceptionally capable. Mm -hmm. They should be able to progress as far as they wish in the same way as men are able to progress as far as they wish. And there's an awful lot of work to be done. One of the things that I don't particularly enjoy about being a woman in politics is having to talk about being a woman in politics as much as I do, because it's always, you know, structured in a way that, gosh, isn't it very difficult or it must be very hard or there's very few of you. And all of those things are true. But until we can stop, you know, I'm looking forward to the day where my successors don't have to talk about it and they can just get on with the business of being politicians and effective Mm -hmm. politicians, because you keep drawing attention to it as though and making it actually more difficult, not less difficult. But the reality is that there's a gap in politics and in the same way there's a gap in financial services and as tedious as it is for you and me to have to describe this to other people we're going to have to continue to do it until that gap is realised I think like gender pay gap reporting was very important I'm quite interested in the publication of data about those who apply for flexible working Mm -hmm. And it's not a difficult thing to do. If you have, you know, most of these organisations have a HR organisation at a particular level. They've had 100 requests or 10 requests or whatever for flexible working that year. How many of them were made by men? And let's just understand that a little bit better and the detail of that a little bit better. And of course, it's something that we can legislate for if we feel that we need to eventually. But those are the sorts of cultural changes that if they're not made by organisations themselves, will obviously have to be made for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And... I think what like what you made what you said was all made so much sense, you know, and for myself I was that person running to the, you know, first at the crash door, you know, popping popping the kids in and, you know, some evenings last collecting, you it know. Feels and it was awful, doesn't it? It was just very stressful time, but we just got on with it and that was just the norm, you know. But yeah, COVID is completely But we can it, have a different norm. One hundred percent. Absolutely. And unfortunately it took COVID to open our eyes, but I think it's been amazing. And I think what I'd hope, you know, I'd really hope that companies don't, you know, go back to old ways. And that, you know, that is a risk, isn't it? Because, you know, people and particularly the insurance companies have been great. You know, they have facilitated, you know, two or three day working weeks or two or three days in the either at home or in the office. But I really hope the industry doesn't go back to, um, you know, wanting people back in full time because I, I think that would really have very, you know, 
significant negative impacts. Well, you know, I look at the labour market at the moment and the, I mean, obviously we have the lowest unemployment we've ever had, 3.8%. There's exceptional pressure on the labour market, particularly in the skilled market, like like an insurance. So I think at the moment, at this point in the labour market cycle, I think it would be a very wrong decision for somebody mm-hmm. to move away from that sort of, you know, hybrid model because it is a point of differentiation. Mm-hmm. It is a question that people, that talented people, skilled people who want to work in your company are asking. It's really important. But under a different labour market conditions, is it something mm-hmm. that can go? You know, that's that's where the risk might be. Another point is, you know, I look at the 3.8% and you have to ask yourself, well, who of those people would work but for you know, what disincentives are there? My own view, you know, I think particularly women coming back into the labour force, which is really what's driven Ireland's economic growth over the last 30 years is, you know, increased labour, female participation in so many different ways. There is a group of women there who I believe would work if the incentives were there. But when you hit the upper tax bracket as early as you do in the Irish taxation system, it is a disincentive. Yep. And I, you know, I mean, I've been very clear, I think people should pay less personal tax, particularly, you know, we've so we've 300,000 more taxpayers in the Irish market at the moment. We have gone from 17% of those paying the upper rate of tax to 23%. We have diversified our tax base. There's a strong argument, as far as I'm concerned, to really look at that group that are, you know, between 40 and 50,000, between 40 and 60,000, and to make work much more attractive more incentivized and it's you know it's more efficient for the tax system anyway but I think in particular there's a group of women who have stepped back from work in one way or another reduced their hours reduced their participation and for whom it's not quite worth it with the cost of childcare now as childcare costs mm-hmm. have come down and will continue to come down but there is a marginal decision to be made there sometimes and I think that's where tax strategy is just as important as sort of the politics of giving people money back in their pockets. Yeah, that's fine, Mm -hmm. of course, and that's what we want to do because I think that's fair. But there's actually a labour market piece that's of real significance when you're at 3.8% unemployment. Yeah, no, absolutely. I fully agree. What's next on your agenda from an insurance perspective? So you've done a huge amount of work um, and done some some fun, fantastic, you know, and followed through on some fantastic initiatives. And as you say, you want to make sure that those initiatives stick, you know, and that's that's really important. But I suppose outside of all of those, you know, really fantastic uh, initiatives, what's next? Well, so myself and Minister Kaleri, who's responsible directly for, for PIAP, we will be meeting PIAP, we will be meeting with the Insurance Ireland. But where I really want to spend my time in the autumn is on two things. One, really getting in with the insurance companies and understanding what's their plan in relation to public liability. This is hugely important. And telling that story more broadly to businesses who have been at the hard end of that, who have, you know, people who have had uh, small slip trips and falls that have resulted in very significant claims that have really prejudiced their business. Businesses that have lived under stress, the stress of what happens if there's a small fall and waiting for a claim to drop, as it were. Spending time really getting into that and speaking with business about their experience now over the next 18, 24 months, making sure that they have the tools to talk to their brokers, their insurance companies about the new environment, getting around Ireland and really listening to business and their experience. That is a big part of what I will be doing in the autumn. But I think also, you know, it's very important to recognise that Ireland is a small insurance market, a small market generally, six million people, it's pretty small and it has suffered reputationally as you've said. I want to go and now tell the story 
of Ireland Inc. and the change that has happened. I will be going right across Europe. I will be across London to say, look, these are the major changes that have happened. This is what's different. This is why you should consider Ireland differently. Because, you know, as I said, if we're a small market, then we're at the margins of decision making in terms of, well, shall I put 10 or 20 or 30 million in Canada or Ireland, you know, and if in those marginal decisions, I want to have done everything that I can to try to make sure that Ireland is the most competitive place. I continue to work with the IDA about attracting different business to Ireland. But again, you know, recognise that it's just not on a lot of lot of companies' business models, but where we can try and tell the story, I always do. Even in my St. Patrick's Day trip, for example, I was speaking with a Welsh insurance company who've, you know, no, no interest in Ireland at the moment. But it, these sometimes these things are, are longer term uh, d- dialogues and discussions. So my plan for the autumn is is real focus on the stickiness of PIAB, talking to business about their experience of insure of, of insurance, talking to insurers about what they're going to be doing and really trying to ameliorate the reputational question for Ireland internationally. And so that involves just getting on a plane and going and talking to people, going and talking to the underwriters, going and talking to the professional bodies and telling the story about what's been done and the real commitment of the Irish government to making sure that this sticks. That's my plan. Yeah, well, it sounds uh, like a fantastic plan and I think the industry is uh, very lucky to have you uh, supporting it and uh, I wish you all the best for all your future endeavours. Thank Thanks you so, so much, much, Jennifer. Thank you.